This fall, I will be preaching through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. I distinctly remember where I was when I was in high school and my younger brother was on a mission trip with me. We were in Philadelphia and our youth pastor assigned us all to do a Bible study. So you were in charge of finding something in the Bible and teaching it. And my brother, in his infinite wisdom, found a book that he had never heard of before. And was like, that's what I'm going to talk about. And so, hopefully I know a little more than my brother did at that time. But for you, you might be like, I didn't even know there was a book called Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. It is one of the wisdom literature books in the Old Testament. It is like Proverbs or Song of Psalms or Job. It's, it's in that category of seeking wisdom. But where Proverbs gives us many wise sayings to read, almost like biblical fortune cookies, Ecclesiastes makes you feel like you are being invited into the mind of a wise thinker as he puzzles through life's mysteries. Another way to think about it is like Proverbs is getting you the answer with a calculator. There it is. It's right there. Ecclesiastes is like seeing all of the steps worked out, including the stuff you crossed out because you went a wrong direction. He shows you his work in seeking wisdom. And so that's where we will be over the next few months is looking through this book of Ecclesiastes. We will quiz you on how to spell it eventually. And so this morning we are going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. You can find the words of the text in the bulletin. You can use your own Bibles or the Pew Bibles. Ecclesiastes 1 verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises. And the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already, and the age is before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you have chosen such humble and ordinary means by which to make yourself known 
and to save your people. And so we pray through this simple preaching and proclaiming of your word, you might do your promised work by your grace, by your power, and by your spirit. Lord, use me in spite of my sinfulness and weakness to faithfully proclaim what you say in your word and open our hearts to receive the word. Open our ears to hear what you have to say, O God. And might you today work through this word to build us up, to correct us, and to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. This morning we are looking at two very basic perspectives on life. They are each called under the sun. And we're just using essentially those terms. Because in Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11, we are told about life under the sun, S-U-N. It is a secular perspective, a godless outlook on life. And we're going to contrast that with what the rest of the Bible has to say about how we should live under the sun, S-O-N, the Son, Jesus Christ, a godly perspective. But, but first, we need to look at what the preacher here, the author, is trying to say to us about what it looks like if you only see the here and now. If you only see this natural world. And the author begins with a bang. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. All is vanity. Now, I usually prefer the ESV translation. That's my preferred translation. But here I have to side with the NIV and other translations that say it like this. Meaningless, meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I asked Abby over the last uh, week or two if she thought you guys would be concerned if I came back after four weeks and started, everything is meaningless. That, that might be like, like, we better check him out. Like, I'm not sure he's okay. But that's the passage here. It starts that everything is meaningless or vanity. And that word translated as vanity or meaningless is a very tricky Hebrew word. And it conveys the idea of a mist or a vapor or smoke. Imagine it's a few months from now and it's colder weather and you exhale outside and you see your breath. It is the vapor from the warmth of your breath. And you see it until it just dissipates a moment later. The author of Ecclesiastes is saying that's what life is like. It's gone. It's just a vapor. You can't grab it. That it's not just that it's short and temporary. It has no substance. It has no purpose. And that's what the author sees when he looks at life under the sun. And that phrase is this secular perspective of life just merely on this natural level without taking God into account. And the preacher is saying that no matter how much we may want to think otherwise, there is no purpose to life. Now, that is bold, that is disturbing, that is very concerning. And so the author is like, I'm not just going to drop that on you like it's a proverb. I'm going to take you through the steps that I took to get here. And he writes in verse 3, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The implied answer is nothing. That men and women gain nothing from all their toil under the sun. That we work, we live, We play, and none of it matters. 
none of it makes any difference. That generations of people are born, they live, and they die. That every day, there are cute little babies being born in hospitals. And every day, there are new obituaries in the newspaper. It just keeps on going. Generations come and go, but the changes they make to the earth do not last. The earth is what remains forever. And so the preacher then turns our eyes away from people to the earth and saying that nature is in this state of movement that is going nowhere. That the sun rises each day and sets only to do it all again tomorrow. And what's the point of all this activity? The same goes for the wind. It blows this way and that. Sometimes harder, sometimes softer. But it's not like the wind is like, mm, I'm done. I'm just not going to blow anymore. What's it doing blowing all that time? The same is true for streams. You can sit by a stream for days or weeks and it doesn't stop. It just keeps on going. The rivers keep flowing into the ocean, but it's not like the ocean is like your glass of water that you're filling up. Your glass fills up. The ocean never seems to fill. And so all of this movement, all of this activity, it seems to have no purpose. The author here is calling it toilsome. And we, as part of nature, are not immune from this. That verse 8 says, all things are full of weariness. That a man cannot utter it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That we cannot say all there is to say about the world. We cannot see all there is to see about the world. We cannot hear all there is to hear about the world. We keep on going through life, but our eyes don't ever stop us and go, I've seen enough. And then shut down. They just keep on bringing it in, bringing it in. Same with our ears. We keep on bringing it in. We keep going through life, but to what end, for what purpose, what do we have to show for it? These are the questions on the mind of the author of Ecclesiastes. And if we're honest with ourselves, they are not questions that we stop and ask because we are busy in this toil. We are busy living and not thinking about why or for what purpose. And so the author wants us to slow down and think. So let's do that. Do we ever feel this way? Do we ever feel like life is monotonous? Do we ever feel like we're just doing the same thing day after day without much to show for it? Maybe you feel that way at work. Maybe you answer yet another phone call from yet another customer about yet another issue, just like you did the day before. Maybe you fill out the same paperwork you did yesterday and last week and last year and 10 years ago. Maybe you feel that way as you make part after part after part at the same machine day after day. Maybe you're fixing the same kinds of problems just at a different house today or a different building this week. Maybe you're treating yet another patient with that same part of their body wrong yet again. Didn't I just fix that in some other person? 
Maybe the school year is starting and it's, I get to teach the same exact stuff to a new group of faces. And at the end of the year, I get to do it all over again next year. Day after day, life can feel the same. Maybe it's not at work. Maybe you feel that way at home. Another trip to the store. Got to go buy food again to make meal after meal. You keep preparing food every day. And you know what? The people keep staying hungry. You don't feed them and they stop being hungry. You clean the house. Oh, it's dirty again. Got to do that again. You have to feed the animals again. Cut the grass again. Replace the light bulbs that you've already replaced. You take out the trash only to do it again next week. You break up an argument between your children that you had already broken up that day. You change that dirty diaper, but you know that that clean diaper is not going to stay clean for long. The same thing. Are these forms of toil any more noble or meaningful than a bee buzzing from flower to flower to make honey? Or a squirrel skittering around to collect nuts? In the grand scheme of the universe, is the toil of all mankind really any more significant and meaningful than a colony of ants? Are we just specks of cosmic dust that have unfortunately evolved enough to realize that we are insignificant? That's what he's trying to get us to think about. And he doesn't let up. In verses 9 through 11, he's telling us it's going to stay this way. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. He tells us there's nothing new. Our world is constantly selling us on, this is a new thing. It's the new phone 17. It's the new TV. It's the new show. It's the new experience. All new things. They're all the same. There is nothing new under the sun. And to make matters worse, the author says, none of it's going to last anyway. In verse 11, he says, there will be no remembrance of things in the past, and there will be no remembrance of whatever is happening today. That for all our toil and efforts in life, the author is saying that all we do amounts to footprints in the sand. And not that super cute footprints where Jesus is carrying you during the hard times of life. No, I mean just your own set of footprints along the beach, and we make this imprint, and we look back, and they're gone. It felt like it took a long time. It felt like we made some impact. But the author is saying any attempt to derive meaning from this life under the sun is vain. It is pointless. And as we will see as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, any attempt to find meaning in this secular world is fruitless. Because if you make work your focus, you can be fired tomorrow or your company can go under. If you build yourself a fortune of wealth, you can lose it in a bad economy or have it squandered by your children. If you seek pleasure in life, you are only distracting yourself and dulling yourself against the reality that death is coming. If you are seeking a moral and good life, you will see the wicked people being rewarded while you suffer. And if we even seek love and family, sin and death 
end up tearing us apart. And so when the author looks at life under the sun, he sees vanity. All he sees is utterly meaningless. There is no purpose to any of it. Let's never let Eric take time off again. Okay. Well, I wasn't itching to preach Ecclesiastes because I wanted to make everybody in this room feel hopeless. It was quite the opposite. I want to go through Ecclesiastes so we see how meaningless and hopeless life is apart from God. That is what he shows us. That life is purposeless, meaningless, vain, apart from God. And so this perspective that he presents in verses 1 through 11, he's not saying, I want you to feel this way. I want you to see things this way. That try as the world might to try to find meaning, it is a vain attempt to cover up the fact that nothing truly matters without God. The author of Ecclesiastes in the beginning here is showing us the darkness so that we are looking for the light. And so the Bible offers us a better perspective of life under the sun. It shows us life under the sun, under Jesus Christ. See, only when we see the world as God's creation, when we see ourselves made in His image, do we see that life has meaning and purpose. And to see the contrast, we don't need to look any farther than our Old Testament reading from Psalm 104. Whereas Ecclesiastes 1 sees a world plagued by monotonous drudgery and pointless toil, Psalm 104 sees a beautifully designed creation working in a life-giving rhythm. I want you to listen to Psalm 104, verses 10 through 15 again. And just hear how different it is than Ecclesiastes. Psalm 104, starting in verse 10. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. That is a very different perspective than Ecclesiastes 1. We see God's creation reflecting his glory. That the intricacies of nature reflect God's wisdom. The vastness of the universe reflects his grandeur. The thunderous storms and mighty wind reflect his power. And the repetitive rhythms of nature reflect his faithfulness and constant provision. The creation testifies to its maker that he is good. And in Genesis 1, we read that he made everything good, that God originally created men and women to enjoy his creation and to rejoice in how all of creation glorified the Lord. That one of life's chief purposes is to enjoy it, to enjoy life as a gift from God in his creation. 
But as we heard during prayer request time, life's hard. Real hard. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the author does not turn away from, but actively wrestles with the reality of suffering, injustice, and evil. Because life isn't always easy to enjoy. We can feel the weariness of this fallen creation. It can feel like we are toiling away in a cruel world until we return to the dust. We can be frustrated by the difficulties and struggles of life. And whenever we do get a moment of enjoyment, it's fleeting. And so we're left asking, how could this happen to God's good creation? Better, why would God allow something so good to become so bad? Well, listen to our New Testament reading from Romans 8 says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The him there is God. He subjected creation to futility. It means that the brokenness, the fallenness of this world is not some mess that God's like, oh man, look what they did. I got to clean this up. No, It means this mess is a punishment, or better, a curse that God has placed on His good creation. The creation is now in a state of futility. That word for futility is the exact same word as vanity and meaningless. See, in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They sought to live apart from God's good rule. And so the Lord cursed them and all of creation so that any attempt that any of us made to enjoy life and find purpose in it apart from God, we would find that it is vain and futile. He filled life with pain and toil as a punishment for sin. But he subjected creation in this way so that we might look outside of creation for hope. Romans 8 continues to say creation was subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So essentially we are in this wicked cycle where it feels like monotonous toil, futility, and we need to get snapped out of it. How is creation going to break out of this meaningless, nothing new cycle? Well, we would need something truly new and different to happen. But the author of Ecclesiastes is saying there is no such thing. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, we don't know exactly when Ecclesiastes was written, in part because Ecclesiastes never makes mention of anything in history. No, like, hey, when we got saved out of Egypt, hey, when this or that. The only thing we read is King David, just in that very first word. That's it. Just it. Oh, yeah, David existed. That's all we know. So it was after David. But you have to imagine that the author had seen this play out a few times. Because the Old Testament has kind of a rhythm that leaves you frustrated. God's people are in trouble and they need help. They cry out for help. God sends someone to help them. They trust in him and are glad. They mess up and sin. They cry out for help 
And we just keep going around and around. And all throughout the Old Testament, every time anyone seemingly new shows up and you get your hopes up, they get dashed. And we just keep on going. We need to break that pattern. Because all throughout the Old Testament, it's the same story with different names. Same story, slightly different circumstances. What creation in its futility needed was something truly new. And wouldn't you know it? In the New Testament, it shows up. Because in the New Testament, we see a child that is born of a virgin. That's new. We see a guy who can change water into wine. That's new. We see a guy who can heal the sick with a touch or with his word, and that is new. Who can open the eyes of the blind and make the paralyzed walk. A man who can calm the storm by speaking to it. That's new. A man who can raise the dead. That's new. And a man who rose from the dead himself. That's new. And so this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is something new because he is God Himself, the creator of all things, who took on flesh and lived among his futile creation, enduring the toil and suffering of life. And he did so in order to redeem creation from its curse, to free us from the vanity of life by making us new creations who live as God's children for his glory. This is our purpose in life to glorify God. And to enjoy Him forever. We do so now in this good yet fallen creation that is groaning for redemption. And we're going to do it for all eternity when Jesus finally comes and makes all things new. And so this morning, I don't know for sure where you are with this thinking. Maybe you've sat like this guy and have thought a lot about these things and maybe not. And so perhaps this morning you are realizing that you have been caught up in the vanity of this world. You have focused too much on things that are fleeting. You have acquired all that the world says is new, and yet all of those things have lost their luster. You have found some happiness, but it is fleeting. That the world's promises for fulfillment have been hollow. If that's true, then forsake the search for earthly pleasures and look to the Lord for life. Look to Jesus who truly satisfies you and can give you unquenchable joy like a stream that will never cease. Maybe some of you this morning are discouraged because life is hard and you've been through a lot of toil and suffering. Perhaps you're feeling weary and weak and wondering how much longer you can go on. That your work is wearing you thin or disease feels like it's eating away at you. Run from the temptation to be cynical about your suffering and to lose hope. Do not despair, but groan to God. Groan with all of creation to be redeemed from the curse of sin. Long for the day when your futility will be turned into glory. And fix your eyes on the hope of the renewal of all things. Maybe this morning you're here and you've ignored God for your whole life. You've thought that this world is all there is. 
You've looked at religion as something other people do and you've never really found a reason to have God in your life. Then wake up. Wake up to the vanity of your life that is, that is as short as a vapor. As the early morning fog disappears, so will your life. That you are more than that. That you are not cosmic dust. You are made in the image of your Creator and He will show you mercy and give you eternal life. Stop rebelling against the One who made you and find joy in living for Him. For those of you who have found life and meaning in Christ, may the Holy Spirit help you to enjoy your life here on earth. May you see that the joys that we experience in this life are but a mere foretaste of the eternal glory and joy that awaits us with the Lord. See the glory of God in His creation all around you and know that all of the toil and all of the suffering we face are like labor pains. They're long, they're hard, and yet they give way to something of far greater glory. Join with all of creation in glorifying your God who created you and redeemed you so that we live and labor now as God's beloved children. Let us pray for that. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to live for you. Give us eyes to see the vanity of this life apart from you. May we see how the promises of this world are hollow and the ways that seem so wise end up with nothing. But may we not despair that there is no purpose. May we see that you, O oh God, are the creator and the futility that we feel is meant to lead us back to you. God, I pray for those of us who are feeling in our hearts a need to look to you more. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would be found by those seeking you. That you, O oh God, might... Show us your glory through creation and that you would help us to find joy even in the toil of this life, that we would rejoice knowing that the sufferings we face now are not worth comparing with the glory yet to come. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.